morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor. It is good that you are here. We are finishing up this morning a message series entitled The Language of God. We've been talking about faith and science for several weeks, and I want to wrap that up with a message today from Revelation chapter 21. So open your Bibles, if you would, in the uh, cafe worship this morning. God bless you all. Matt Betts, we love you. Appreciate you all worshiping with us. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, and into chapter 22. In uh, talking about faith in science, I want to offer up a specimen for you today. Uh, this is the mayfly, if, uh, Sarah, if you can help me out. Uh, the mayfly is from the uh, insect order uh, Ephemeroptera. Go ahead and say that, Ephemeroptera, say it. Yeah, y'all are so good. So, so you, you are A-plus science students. The mayfly is from the order of Femoroptera, which, which in Latin simply means short-lived, short-lived. Uh, the mayfly is, uh, of all the creatures God ever made, the one with the shortest lifespan. The mayfly typically lives uh, 24 hours or less. 24 hours or less. The less part is important because when you're a mayfly, everything in the world wants to eat you. You understand? So mayflies are very common around ponds and lakes and rivers. And so here is their story. Uh, in the beginning of their adult life, they emerge from the mud of the river bottom and they emerge into the sunlight. After that, they tend to molt twice, that they molt twice. And this is before you, you've even had breakfast, you understand? That they molt twice, then they mature, they fall in love, they mate in midair. Midair people. Uh, after that, they lay their eggs, they hang out, and then they get eaten. They're eaten. In less than a day, they live their entire life. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. And for me as a believer, the first thing I do is think back to God. And I think about how insignificant and short that life seems if you're a mayfly. How in a single day that that insect can live its entire life. It's a full life. The mayfly isn't hurrying, isn't rushing through it. It's just its life, and it doesn't ask any questions. But for us, we look at that, that short life, and we think, my goodness, that's so insignificant. That is just so short. As a believer, I stand back, I sort of take the perspective of, of God for a moment, and I imagine how short and insignificant my life, your life, must seem from the perspective of a creator who dwells in eternity. You understand? For the God who is beyond time, outside of time, he must look at us in the same sort of way that that, that hundred years that you and I might live where we go through the entire life cycle, that is so brief, that is so short, it is so insignificant to God. That's how I think. But I'm a believer. And remember, there are a whole lot of non-believers in the world, and some of those are very honest and close observers of the world. Neil deGrasse Tyson is one of those men. He's becoming something of a famous astrophysicist in our day, and he really is a, a very, very amazing man. He's currently the new host of the show Cosmos on the Fox Network. He, he, he's a pretty amazing man. He's an honest man, and in his honesty, he'll tell you that he is really an agnostic, not an atheist so much as an agnostic. He simply believes that if there is a God, we can't know him, which is interesting. But I want you to see a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson. This is what he says. He says, when I look at the universe and all the ways the universe wants to kill us, 
I find it hard to reconcile that with the idea of a loving creator who means to do us good. That's just honest. That's just honest. And I would have to say, he's got a good point. He's a scientist, an astrophysicist, and he studies closely this world that we say God has made. But Neil deGrasse Tyson says it's hard to imagine that this is a world that a loving and good creator has made because it doesn't look like a world that a loving and good creator would make. Scientists since Charles Darwin have said the very same thing. They've simply said that in this world there's too much waste, there's too much decay, there's too much death. I remind you about the mayfly whose life itself just seems so short and, and pointless. It's born and, and lives for less than a day and then everything in the world just wants to eat it and it's dead before supper. Do you understand? Neil deGrasse Tyson simply says, I find it hard to reconcile the universe as it is with the idea that a good and loving creator would have made it. How would you answer that? Jack says that Neil deGrasse Tyson is looking at, the, at looking at the world, the glass is half empty, it's also half full. Yeah, It's that other half, it's the other half that he can't see that I want us to pay attention to today. This is the part that honestly none of us can see. It has to be shown us, and for that I bring you to Revelation chapter 21. What you have to know, and this is what science can't tell us, so it's not that scientists are being dishonest, they just simply cannot find this sort of truth open to their observation and investigation. You understand? This is truth that we believe as believers has been revealed to us by the Creator Himself. And this is what you need to know. The world as it is is not finished. The Creator is not done yet. And the only way to truly understand the world as it is, is to understand the world as it's going to be. In, in other words, we're not so much talking about what God has made, but we're more interested in what God is making everything into. Understand? It's not so much what God has made in the past, it's what God is making everything into in the future. So what we need is a future perspective on creation, and you and I don't have that, and no scientist can ever look at the world from the future. This is why we have the revelation from God that shows us what everything's going to be. So look with me, Revelation chapter 21. This is a perspective that only God can give us, only the creator, but he wants us to see. Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Revelation 21, and then in chapter 22, again, seven verses. So read with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old earth and the old heaven had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are, say the words, gone forever. Yeah. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. 
And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. And then Jesus speaks and says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Honestly, how do you make sense of it? As believers sitting in church, you and I are very, very accustomed to saying that this is the world that God has made. But stop and think about that. The world is brutal. At our house, uh, we have birds. We live in the woods, and, and there are trees all around, but somehow the birds still prefer to build their nests on our porch. And so we have this bird every year that wants to come and, and, and build a nest over the ceiling fan on our back porch. Well, my wife goes on this mission every spring to, to, to keep those birds from nesting on our porch because she knows me. I, I really don't kill anything. It's not that I'm afraid. I just don't kill things, and especially birds, baby birds. And, and once the eggs are in the nest, I will not move a nest. The Old Testament has a verse about that, actually. You don't disturb a bird's nest. So, so honestly, Casey knows me. So her mission is just to keep the birds from ever building in the first place. And she's pretty good. She's pretty good. Her strategy this year was just to turn that ceiling fan on, turn it on, thinking that therefore the birds would never be able to get up there and build the nest. Well, wrong. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> this mama bird somehow built this gigantic nest. I guess she's just enjoying the breeze up there with the ceiling fan roaring. And so sure enough, she built her nest. We're going to leave it till the babies come. That, that's always my thing. We'll clean it down once the babies are here. And sure enough, she, she made her nest of eggs, uh, the babies hatched, and, and it's a glorious and wonderful thing. I, I, I'm a grandpa, I guess. Um, <laughs> But the really sad thing, one of the baby birds, and it's just an itty-bitty baby bird that they've been nesting now. Mama's been, you know, eating and puking in their mouth, as birds do. And uh, this baby bird apparently decided to leave the nest. Now, I remind you, we've still got that ceiling fan on. We just left it on so they could enjoy the breeze or whatever. But anyway, the baby bird, this is my theory because it's sort of a CSI thing. You can sort of see what happened. Um, this baby bird decided to go out into the world, must have taken two steps out of the nest. The way I figure it, must have, you know, 
sort of stepped right out into the, into the air and, and then immediately got hit by the fan, pop, into the wall. That's what I'm thinking. Baby bird gets sort of, you know, pops out of the nest, you know, and, and then, you know, slapped by the ceiling fan into the wall and then ricochets off the wall, goes down and hits the pavement below. I'm thinking cause of death trauma. <laughs> It's a baby bird, you guys. I mean, I'm not asking you to cry tears, but I just want you to understand, it's a rough world. It's a rough world. This baby bird took its two steps out into the world. Baby bird, welcome to the world and goodbye. You understand? That's how long it lasted. And if you're honest, and, and many, many scientists are honest, they just simply look at the world like that, and they can't make any sense out of the, 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 the meteors and the dead birds. I, I, I'm just telling you, it, it just really does seem sort of pointless. And, and the question, which is a serious question for many people, simply becomes, is there a God who is presiding over all of this? Because honestly, it doesn't always seem, if you look at things as they are, it doesn't always seem that there would be a God of order and a God of love and goodness who's presiding over this. The, the, the world, as the poet says, is red with tooth and claw. It, it's brutal. It's beautiful. It'll break your heart with its beauty, but it's brutal. If all you had was a present world, I don't know what conclusions you could make. That's why God wants us to see more. It's why God himself, the creator, has chosen to show us more. And what he's chosen to show us is what we need to know so that we can make sense of all of this and so that we can know that there is a creator who presides over all of this. But it's, it's more than you think. It's more complicated than you think, but... But, but there's several things you, you need to know. When it comes to the universe, when it comes to creation now, whether you are a person of faith or a person of science, I want to offer you today two very, very important questions. And this is what it comes down to. First, what comes last? Often when we want to debate with the scientists, we go right back to origins. We talk about the beginning. But, but remember, the God who reveals himself to us in Scripture says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And so if you're going to gain the right perspective, you have to somehow not just pay attention to the beginning, but also the end. And this is what God shows us in Scripture, and it's what he wants you all to know, that it's not just a matter of what comes first, but, but what comes last. And then the second question, what lasts? What comes last and what lasts? And this is what the book of Revelation shows us, what comes last. So let's start there. When everything is done, when this world gets to the end toward which everything is moving, what happens last? What comes last? And it's actually rather amazing and exciting. Look back in chapter 21, verse 3. What comes last? What happens last in, in, in this big old world? And this is what we find out. Verse 3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And then the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. Y'all seem very unexcited about that. 
Do you understand that what comes last, what happens last, is what I would call the triumph of God? He wins. He triumphs. And the last thing that we hear here in chapter 21 is this shout. It's a shout. It's the very shout of God saying, it is finished. It's finished. Not the shout from the cross where Jesus himself said salvation was finished. This is the shout of the creator saying, I'm done. It's finally finished, and he's shouting with victory and triumph. It is the triumph of God, and it happens at the end. Not the beginning, but at the end. Do you understand? So when you ask the question, is there a God presiding over all of this? Is there a God? Do you notice it right here at the end that the shout is coming from a throne? From a throne. There is a throne, and there is one, one sitting on it. In other words, there is, has been, and always will be a God who is in control of this mess. And it is a mess. At this present moment, it is a mess. But he's not finished. This is what you have to know. When you look at the universe as it is, you can train your telescopes. You can put it under your microscope. I'm telling you, you'll learn some things about the world as it is. But only God, only the creator can reveal to you his own mind, the very future of everything. And one of these days he will shout, it is finished. And that's what comes last. His triumph, the completion. He and he alone is taking creation to the purpose, to the end that he and he alone intends. He is presiding over this mess. And one day it will be made right. It will be made new. What comes last? His victory. What comes last? The, the purpose of the creator. He's never abandoned it. He's never left it. He has always remained close to this world, and he is going to take it right to the end that he intends. What comes last? His victory. It's amazing. It's beautiful. You can't know that, except that he tells us that. That's a matter of faith, not science. This moment of God's victory, at the end when everything is exactly as he intends, what's it look like? What, what lasts? That's the big question. Of everything that you know and enjoy about this life and this world, and, and you've got to know by now, I love everything about it. I love this world. Now, I'm not talking about the world of sin. I'm not talking about the world of evil. I'm just talking about this creation that God has made. I'm in love with it. I, I love it. I love snakes. I look for them. I, I mow my yard and just keep watching for them. When I see one, I'm going to get off the mower and talk to it. I love snakes. I love birds. I love animals of all kinds. I love dirt. I just love dirt. I love sky and clouds. I love it all. So one of the questions I ask is when it's all over, what's going to be there? What lasts? Now, of everything that we know and love, What's eternal? And it turns out not much. Not much about this world is eternal. And we all recognize the cycle of life and death that characterizes creation as it is. When you start thinking about what lasts, you can see here at the end that, well, first off, the creator, 
He, he is eternal. He's not a part of creation. He's not a part of this world and this heaven that passes away. God himself is eternal. And at the end, God on his throne, it still remains. You understand? He remains. And we discovered that this throne, that this God, that, that the throne also belongs to the one in Revelation called the Lamb. The, the lamb, he's the focus of all worship. At the end, if you want to know what comes last, it is the entire universe united in worship around the one called the lamb. This is Jesus, the lamb who was slain from the very foundations of the world, Scripture says. From before creation, he was the sacrifice, the one that God has set forth to reconcile all creation to himself. So in the end, you have God on his throne, and the throne also belongs to the lamb, and you have God's people, God's people last, those who have known him, those who have been reconciled to him in time, in this world, in the world to come, they have their place there with them, and they worship him forever and ever and ever. You understand? We call that heaven sometimes, but, but honestly, what you've often thought about in terms of heaven, what you've pictured in terms of heaven, probably needs to be corrected by what Scripture says. I'm just being honest with you. The idea that one of these days we're going to leave this world and go live in heaven with God, that's not exactly what Scripture says. You will be forever with God and with all of God's people. But our eternity is spent on the new earth. Do you understand? He's going to make everything new, a new heaven and a new earth. And the city of God, God's dwelling comes down to where we are. So our eternity, read the Bible, is on the new earth. I kind of like that because that sort of makes me think there's still going to be snakes there and birds and sky. It's just all going to be new. This is the point. It's going to be all made new. I'm making everything new. So if we're going to talk about what lasts, maybe we should talk about what doesn't last. We can talk about what's there, but... Revelation really wants to make sure you know what's not there. And if you read, help me out, if you read through chapter 21 and 22 very, very carefully, John, who, uh, who writes Revelation, loves numbers. And you'll find that 12 is one of the numbers he really likes. And in chapter 21 and 22, there are 12 things that do not last. They're gone forever. And I wish they were gone today. These are all the things that don't belong. First two, the old heaven and the old earth are gone. They're gone. That's what John says. It's sort of a beautiful part of the passage. When God himself is first revealed in all of his glory, it says heaven and earth just run away from him. That's kind of the language of, of the revelation. But the point is the old heaven, the old earth, they're gone forever. What you've always known, the home you've known as the earth, what you've thought of as the sky and heaven, it's gone because Christ is making all things new. The old heaven and the old earth gone forever, and there's no more sea. That, that's interesting. Now, you've got to be willing to, to read this passage with, with the layers of meaning that are intended. It's not so much that God hates the ocean. That, that's not what we're talking about. When you read the book of Revelation, the sea is the place where the beast comes out. The sea is the place where the enemies come from. The sea is a place of chaos. The sea is a place of danger and separation. And this is what is being revealed, that, that there will be no more unforeseen enemies. There will be no more separation, no more danger, no more chaos. There will be no more sea, no more death, no more death. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. 
See, this is one of the issues with people who look at the world as it is, because the world that we know is full of pain and crying and sorrow and death. It just is. And that's why people begin to wonder, I mean, if the world is like this and you say that God's in control of it, then I don't know if I can trust a God like that. A God who would create a world with so much death and sorrow and crying and pain. And and this is what you need to see. That God has always and is always opposed to pain and crying and sorrow and death. God is going to create a world, recreate a world where none of these things are there. They're gone forever. Understand, God is opposed to these things just as you are. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more, go ahead and say it. No more temple. Now I have to admit, when I heard the old preachers talk about heaven back when I was a kid, they made it sound like an eternal church service. And some Sundays I thought I was in it. I know what y'all are thinking. Yeah. It's not an eternal church service. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that in heaven there'll be no more preaching. You can say amen. I'll be glad for all those days off. No more preaching. You sit in church. I, I love you. I, I understand it. I, I've sat in church too. But most of you, most Sundays, you look like you're chewing on a Kleenex. You look so unhappy, you look so bored, and and I get it, I understand, but please, please don't think that heaven is just like a church service that never ends, because it's not. It's just not. There is no temple there, which is to say that, that, that the worship is accomplished because we are forever, forever in the, in the simple presence of the God who himself is glorious. And you will never tire of beholding his beauty. You will never, ever become bored by his majesty, by his power. Do you understand? Heaven, the world to come, is going to be so beautiful. So please don't think it's like a church service that just never, ever ends. That would probably be more like the other place. Understand? No temple there. No sun, no moon, no night. In the ancient world, I know it's hard for us, but before there was electricity, understand? Night was a rather fearful thing. And honestly, a world with no sun, no moon, no night would be, would be absolutely unthinkable in the ancient world. But the idea that there would be a place with no need of sun, no need of the moon, because God himself, his glory is the light. This is what the scriptures say. No sun, no moon, no night, no darkness, no evil. No evil. It's gone forever. You know, evil is live spelled backwards. And honestly, it's always been that. Evil's always been somehow the contradiction, the the negation of everything that God has intended. Gone forever. If you want to understand the creator, the God who has created everything, if you want to understand what he has made, You've got to have this view. You've got to understand the heart, the mind of the maker. He's not finished yet. And when he's finished all of these things, evil will be gone forever. When I was finishing up my doctoral studies, I did a 
residency. I'm a painter. I'm an artist. I did an artist in residency at a place called Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. It was a wonderful time of my life. It was really, really good. One of the conditions of, of being an artist at this seminary is that I had to have an open studio at all times. That, that, that's part of what the seminary wanted, and I love Wesley for this. You know, seminary is a place where ministers are in training, and all of these ministers will be leaving the seminary and going back to their churches. And, and Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C. wants the arts, wants art to be an everyday part of, of congregations. And so they wanted ministers to, 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 to bump up against artists on a regular basis. So they wanted artists on campus. They put the studios right in the heart of the academic building. We were right in the center of the campus. But again, the deal was I had to be willing to let people just wander through all day long. And, and honestly, there's a part of that, that that drove me crazy. Because right when you're really trying to focus, when you sort of get in a creative groove, uh, somebody's going to wander through. And, and it's always a non-artist, and they always ask dumb questions. But, but that was part of it. I had to stop and answer questions and, and help them understand. One day in particular, I was, I was working on a painting. It was a giant canvas. I'd been working just, the, just that morning. I'd just really gotten started, and I'd, my original drawing was on there, and just uh, first layer of color. This lady walks in. This seminary lady just kind of comes in, and I'm back here because I'm looking at my canvas, and, and she sort of walks up and stands in front of me like this. She just stood and looked at it for the longest time. And again, I have an open studio, so that's good. She can do that, so I just watch her. She doesn't say anything for the longest time. Then all of a sudden she says, something's not quite right. <laughs> something's not quite right. Open studio, right? I didn't say what I wanted to say to her. What I said was, ma'am, come back tomorrow. Come back maybe the next day. I'm not finished. I just got started. I'm not finished. I didn't want her to evaluate what I was making in the middle of the making of it. Do you understand? Because she couldn't see what I could see. She didn't know what was in my mind. This world that God has made, you've got to understand, he's not finished. It's just not finished. Scientists can't look into the mind of the maker so they can't see what God sees. And it's not because they're not honest. It's simply because there is no instrument. There is no investigation. There's no experiment that will reveal to us what only God can reveal to us. But what God wants you to know is it's not finished. You can't simply look at what God has made. You have to understand something of what God is making everything into. Do you understand? Now, part of what you really need to understand is that this isn't just something objective, something you can think about, something that you can ask questions about and, and then either decide or, or maybe not decide. Well, what you really need to know is that you're in this. You are in this. You are not simply an objective observer of nature and science and everything that, that, that there is. You're in this. And so while we're thinking about questions, what happens last or what lasts, I, I, I'd like to ask you another question. I would like to ask you, well, what is your life? 
What is your life? Is my life and your life kind of like the mayfly? And we just sort of, we crawl out of the mud and then we sort of live our lives and then we're gone, just gone. And that's all there is to it, just sort of pointless and brief. Do you really think that that's what your life is? Because I want to tell you what Scripture shows us. I want to tell you what I believe with all my heart. And it's simply this. Your life is more. It's more. Now, the world as it is is beautiful on some days, but it is so brutal on most days. And I can understand how it could just break your heart and make you bitter. I can understand how easy it is to sort of think that there must not be a God, or if there is a God, he must not be paying attention, or at least he doesn't seem to be paying attention to me. I mean, that's how it feels. But but this is what you need to know, that you have a maker. You have a maker, and you are loved I don't know if, 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 if the world itself could reveal that to you. I don't know if you would discover that on your own, but the God who made you wants you to know that, that he made you and that you are loved and that he created you as, as his masterpiece. You, you, he, he knows you by name. I know that's hard for you to possibly imagine, but this is what I'm telling you. The God capable of creating all of this, the God who speaks big bangs, the God who speaks constellations, the God who just simply thinks and, and suddenly entire galaxies explode into existence. Do you understand that mind, that maker is infinite? But also his heart is fathomless. It's not just his thoughts about you. And he thinks about you. This is what you just need to know. And and it's difficult because you begin to think, well, my goodness, out of all the billions of people who've ever existed, you think he focuses on one of us? And the answer is yes, he does. He knows the number of hairs of hair on your head. Some of you, that's not hard. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Not only that, the scriptures say that he attends the funeral of every sparrow that falls. That bird that had the awful death on my back porch, God didn't miss that. His mind is infinite. His heart is fathomless. And he's not finished. He's not finished. The world as it is, is is not as God intends it to be. It's, It's broken. It's ruined. There are aspects of our existence on this earth that that God is directly opposed to, and you need to understand that. God wants to recreate the world so that there's no crying, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no evil. God is going to destroy all of these things. But but this is what God reveals to us in the Scripture. This is what God shows us in Christ. That in God's effort now to make everything new, in God's effort to, 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 to remake the world into the world that he wants it to be, it's complicated because we're in such a situation now, but because of us, because of our choices, because of humanity... It's become impossible for God to destroy the evil that he hates and at the same time not destroy the people that he loves. This is what I'm telling you. You're loved. You're created by a God for whom you're a masterpiece. But 
But you're ruined too. You're broken too, just like the rest of the world. Your life is no longer going according to plan. And so now you start wondering why God doesn't make everything right, why God doesn't go out and, and, and destroy all the evil and all the suffering and all the sickness. Well, you've got to understand that sickness, that evil, that suffering, it's in you. It's deep in you. And it's become simply impossible for God to destroy these things in the world without destroying the people that he loves. And, and this is the point. This is the good news that the scriptures preach. That the creator, the God who made it all, sent his son Jesus into creation. God, the maker, took on flesh. He himself became part of his creation so that he could remake it from the inside out. And that's what he's doing. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Here's this big question for you today, and it's the question I want to leave you with. How can you have a place in God's new creation? How can you have a place in in the world that God is going to remake? How can you know that when the world gets to its end that God's leading it toward, how can you know that you'll have a place in God's new creation? It's a simple answer, really. You have to let him make you new. If you're going to have a place in God's new creation, you've got to let him make you new. You have to put your life back into the hands of the maker. You have to let him remove everything in you that does not belong. You have to let him restore your soul. You have to be willing to look for him, be honest about what he says to you. You have to be willing to surrender to whatever he asks you to do. He's God, you're not. But in all of your questions and all of your scientific discovery, I don't want you to miss the questions that matter most. And those are the questions that have to do with you, your life, its purpose, its meaning, most importantly, where it's all headed. If you're going to have a place in the world after God makes everything new, you have to allow him first to make you new. What this means is that you need to believe in him, believe in Jesus, the one that God has sent. You need to begin opening your heart and your mind to him. Sometimes we call this like a relationship with God, and truly it is more like a marriage or, or more like just that friendship. It's just simply coming alongside or letting God come alongside you in, in this life, and trying to let him show you the things he needs you to know. There are lots of things you can figure out by looking closely, by study, by science. But honestly, the most important things you need to know about your life, only God can show you. I'm asking you, let him show you your life. Let him make you new. Pray with me. God, you and you alone have made us, and you and you alone have made the earth and the world. Lord, you and you alone 
know what you're making of all of it. God, forgive us in our arrogance for thinking that we can study and figure it all out on our own. Forgive us for thinking that only the things we can discover are the truths worth knowing. God, help us to know something of your mind. Help us to know something of what you want us to know so that we can understand what our lives are and what our lives are for. Lord, there are people in this room and people in the sound of my voice who imagine themselves very, very intelligent, Lord, but who never really seem to ask the questions of value. Lord Jesus, I pray that they would stop hiding behind the questions that they can't answer and start leaning a little harder, Lord, into the questions that have no answers. Those, Lord, are the questions for which you and you alone are the answer. Lord Jesus, I pray for every lost, every bored, every hungry soul. I pray for every one of us, Lord, that are in the grips of sin and sorrow and death and crying. And Lord, we long for the day when you make all things new. We long for the day when the shout rings forth from the throne of the Creator who says, it is finished. I and the Alpha and the Omega, Lord, we long to hear that voice in our own ears. Most importantly, we long for that day, Lord, when we ourselves will be made completely new. When we will see you as you are, Lord God, and in that instant, we ourselves will become like you are. Lord, I pray that we not wait for that day when we face you. I pray that even today, we will surrender. We will believe. We will let you make us new that we might have an eternal home with you when you come. We love you, Lord. We pray for those who do not understand. We pray for those who will not believe. We pray for those, Lord, in our families who we know are lost. Lord Jesus, you have come to save, renew the world. We beg you, Lord, to save and renew us and all those, Lord, who need to know pray these things in the name of the Creator, the name of the Savior, Jesus.